It's good to look out and see all the diversity and see most of your smiling faces. There's a few that maybe have had a tough week, um, but it is so good to gather with God's people and uh, to worship the Lord together. And over the next uh, two weeks, I'm just kind of stepping away from how I normally do things, but as we work through a book of the Bible, and just try and reflect on on a couple of things. One, what I see as important for a church. Uh, that's what we'll look at this week, some of the, the big rocks, I think, of church life and church theology. And then next week, to spend a little bit uh, of time on uh, a seventh rock and what it is that we're waiting for from God or how it is that we can move ahead with God. And so I'm wrestling with those issues. And uh, this morning, as I say, it's the it's the first of those big rocks. And, you know, it struck me just this morning as we were worshiping um, my grandsons here. And as I'm thinking about the church, I was thinking, what are we passing on? What's the What's the foundation that we are laying? What is the traditions that we are continuing in so that when I'm long gone from this earth, should the Lord tarry? And, you know, these little ones who are six months, a year old, then they become 20 and 25. What will be the church for them? And uh, so some of these things are, are those sorts of reflections. And as I've been putting together even this morning, there's been about four or five things that are circling around in my head. And uh, before I get there, I just want to read one text of Scripture, just because I, I think it helps us understand um, one of the foundations of the church. And it's from First uh, Timothy chapter 3. And it's really the, the reason that Paul wrote the book of Timothy to give him an instruction on what the church should look like. And uh, there's lots of things in the book of Timothy, and I think every one of these things that we're going to be talking about this morning are found in the book of Timothy. But I, I like his purpose for what he wrote um, to, these, uh, to, these, uh, these, to Timothy, to spread to the church. And starting at verse 14, he simply says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Beloved, that is what we are, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Let's pray for a couple of moments. Father, we do come before you now this morning and we want to continue to rejoice around your word and to be glad in the fact that you have revealed yourself to us. And that you have set before us the way that we should walk. And you have given us a, a pattern of how we ought to worship and how we ought to be the household of God together. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at these six things, even this morning, that um, you would be pleased to impress them on our hearts and minds. That uh, we would see them to be um, key parts of what it means to be the household of God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the four or five things that have been running around in my head as I have been praying and thinking uh, this last month or so and looking ahead is, is, is certainly our mission statement. Some of you may or, not, may, may or may not be familiar with the mission statement, but it is fairly simple and fairly straightforward that we want to make fully devoted followers of Christ who choose to impact their world. You can see that that is a balanced statement. It has the fully devoted followers of Christ, which reflects on us as a church family and as a body of Christ and the fact that we are to disciple one another. And then the 
second part of that is who choose to impact their world. It's not just about us. It's about taking the gospel out into a lost and dying world. And so as I was reflecting on that a little bit, I, I'm thinking in my head, so what underpins that theologically? What are some of the, the big pieces of scripture that would help us make sense of giving feet to that mission statement, making fully devoted followers of Christ who choose to impact their world? Another phrase that has been floating around in my head for ever since it came out, um, Pastor Gerald introduced it to us when we were doing the missions conventions about three years ago. It first uh, sort of came out that we want to learn about what it means to be missionaries across the street and around the world. I think we do fairly well at around the world. Um, it, there's a simplicity about that, I guess, in a certain sense, that if we don't want to go, we can give and we can pray and, and we can be updated. But our lives are relatively unimpacted by missions across the world unless we actually go. But when we talk about missions across the street, that's a whole other story. Because we now have to engage in relationships that may continue for months, years, and many years. And we have to personally get involved. It's not just a matter of um, giving money or praying, but we now have to interact with people who live across the street from us. And some of you may remember Barbara Judd chatting with us as they were preparing to do the uh, Backyard Bible Clubs that she had no problem with missions around the world because you could go and you could, uh, you know, you could participate and then you could always come home and get back to your life. But she was terrified about going across the street because of the implications for her life. Um, and so I've been reflecting on that. What does it mean for us to take this gospel that has transformed many of our lives across the street and around the world? Another phrase that we have been thinking about a little bit, and uh, I think it just helps us to uh, wrestle with these phrases, is that we want to be eternal, internally strong while remaining passionately focused on externals. So how do we be a church that has a good balance between um, the, the, the family of God and the body of Christ, and yet being passionately committed to seeing people of all races, ages come to faith in Jesus Christ? We have to never forget that balance as a church. And I've seen it over the course of my life, churches that have given themselves almost exclusively to evangelism at the expense of being eternally strong. And it's a very shallow church. They don't know the doctrines of Scripture well. They don't know the, the, the things that make for, for, for stability in the faith. But then I've also seen churches where they are so strong on doctrine that they have lost any concern. For those who don't yet know Christ. And so we need to wrestle with how do we become or continue to be internally strong and yet passionately committed to an external focus. Another thing that has been crossing my mind, and, and I don't know where this has come from. It's just sort of been welling up in my heart and mind. And as I've reflected on the Lord's Prayer and have been for probably two or three years um, after I chat, taught a little class on it, the very first petition is really a command, and all the petitions are commands. Believe it or not, that the disciples are, um, Jesus is saying, you can command God. And he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, king in, the, the coming of God's kingdom is not just about the reign and rule of God in our lives and in, in, in the people that are here. It's a kingdom that is expanding and growing. 
And so for the king, for us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What we are praying in part is, God, may your kingdom expand into areas where it has never yet expanded to. And as I've been thinking about that more and more, it's been rising up in my heart that we need to be about, as a church and individuals, looking for ways to give everyone in Oceanside an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. That's some 25,000 plus people. Pastors can't do it. Deacons and elders can't do it. It means that every single one of us has to say, you know what? Somebody shared the gospel with me. I need to share the gospel with somebody else. And then finally, a number of months ago, again, and it's amazing how God just pulls all these loose ends together. And I don't see the picture yet, but he's pulling them together. I read this book uh, called Reckless Abandon. And it's a book that is really... um, been a helpful book for me. It's a book about missions, and it could probably be titled The Acts of Christ in the 21st Century. The book contains the story of a young man, David Stinton, who had been spoken to by a, a veteran missionary, Joe uh, Connor, um, uh, about going to Papua New Guinea, where they had never heard the gospel. David Stinton was 19 years old. He was a surfing bum living, the, living it up in, in uh, southern Texas. And this man came along and shared this with him. He said to him, Brother, there are whole tribes of people in Papua New Guinea who have never heard the name of Jesus. Some are cannibals. Some have pig tusks through their noses and wear grass skirts. Many are wild, reckless, and dangerous. They don't know the gospel. Come with me into the jungles, swamps, and high mountains. Let's go get some of them for Jesus. And it was that sentence and that paragraph that gripped his heart. And he gave the next 30 years of his life to seeing God do in Papua New Guinea what we read about in the book of Acts. And as I've been reflecting on that, it's like God is saying to me, Paul, we need to go get people in Arrington and Coombs and Qualicum and Parksville who have never heard the gospel. We need to go get some of them for Jesus. And so these things are all sort of bubbling around in my head, and and I've been trying to piece them together in a way that will be helpful to us as a congregation. And I thought, well, the best place to start is, is sort of the big rocks for me when it comes to being internally strong. And these are things that I have been praying about for years for every church I've been in, but more particularly this church because I have a greater responsibility here. And so these are sort of my prayers for the church. And my first prayer would be along these lines, that I pray for a church that is biblical. I pray for a church that is founded upon God's word. Now, some of you might think, well, that's just a given, Paul. Well, it is not a given. Because the Bible tells us that in the last days, which we are in, that in the last days, people will be given over to doctrines taught by deceitful spirits and by demons. And so there are demonic forces and there are deceitful people that are deliberately trying to undermine the doctrine and the foundation of the church. I read in different places, uh, particularly I think about the book of Jude, where it says there that we are to contend earnestly for the faith because some have come in trying to corrupt the faith. 
um, I look at churches around us and I see the pressures that are bearing from the world and some of them have left the word of God as a foundation long ago and now they just talk about nice, happy things. They don't offend. They don't warn. They don't speak the hard truths of Scripture and therefore they don't do their people any good. My prayer is that we would be a biblical church founded on the Word of God, whether it be in our Sunday school classes, our youth groups, our women's studies, our men's groups, or from this pulpit. And I was thinking of many scriptures that go along with that, and we certainly know Second Timothy 3.16. Most of you probably know it by heart. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. You see, it's this word of God that allows us to be complete as God intended us to be. Another uh, verse that reminds me of the the necessity of the word of God is Hebrews 4.12, where it says there, the word of God is living and active and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as to divide soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. And then listen to this. It is the judge of the ideas and thoughts of the heart. I don't know what's in your mind. I don't know what's in your heart. But I do know that when this word is talked about, preached, proclaimed, that it has the ability to go places where no human being is able to go. It is the word of God and its penetrating ability to deal with our stuff. There's another place that comes to my mind. Jesus, when he was wrestling with Satan in the wilderness and uh, he was getting all kinds of temptation and Satan came along and says, you know what? You need to take these ro- rocks, Jesus, because you've been here for a long time. You know, it's been almost 40 days now and you've not eaten. And I'm sure you're getting pretty hungry. So you can just speak and this rock will be turned into bread and you'll have food to eat. And Jesus' response to him was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There are many scriptures that I could look to. Psalm 19, which I read this morning a beautiful psalm which talks about the the perfections of the Word of God and the completeness of the Word of God. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. Every verse, with the exception of two or three, which speak about the value of the Word of God. We could look at those, but in the end of the day, there's enough said already that the church has to be founded in the Word of God. And so my prayer is that we would be a gathering of people who are committed in every detail of our lives to the word of God, whose pastors seek to teach and explain the word of God with integrity and relevance, building up the body of Christ in order to present every member mature in Christ, whose people love and adorn the word of God with an obedient and Christ-like life, not given to fads or unbiblical emphases, but rather characterized by the health and beauty of a biblical balance, a place where God's word fills our thoughts, controls our minds, determines our actions, and undergirds our worship. I pray for a biblical church. Secondly, I pray for a church that worships the one and true living God. Worship is something that doesn't just take place here on Sunday. Worship encompasses our whole life. It is something that is revealed in our day-to-day lives from uh, uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. 
Worship has to do with what occupies our time, with what occupies our energy, with what consumes our thinking. What you think about most often, beloved, is what you worship. And often, what you worship is what controls your lives and your actions. And so, you can worship money, or you can worship a career, or you can worship pleasure, or you can worship yourself. And it's that which guides and directs your life. And in fact, you serve what you worship. So if that's the case, then I think worship matters. And worshiping the right thing or person matters. And so I pray that we would be a people that worship God and God alone. Jesus, speaking to the woman at the well in, um, in John chapter 4, speaks to her and says, you know, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? I think in spirit just means the attitudes of our heart, that worship is internal. And sometimes we get all cut up in external worship. Well, I go to church and I give my tithes and I read my Bible and I dress the right way so I'm worshiping. Beloved, your heart can be miles away with all that external stuff. And you've not worshipped at all. So worship is internal. But not only is it internal, it's it's bounded by truth. And so we have to worship what is true. And God is true. And God reveals truth to us. And so we worship internally, which is reflected externally, the God who is true. Matthew helps us understand what worship is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. I don't see any room for anything else there. It is, it is not you shall worship God 20% of the time with your heart, mind, and soul, uh, and then you can work and have relationships and whatnot. No, it says that everything about us, all the time, everywhere, should be focused on God. And I believe as we worship God in that way, our marriages will work, our relations with our kids will work, our jobs will work, because God is the focus of our life. Another verse which we're um, well aware of, which talks about the regularity of our worship, he said, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our meetings as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I must confess I am troubled sometimes by the take-it-or-leave-it attitude to church. And by that I mean to the gathering of God's people. Worship is not sort of an option. It is part of the Christian's life, and gathering together in a corporate way is necessary because I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. Because we have words of encouragement. We have words of warning. We sing together. We're led in worship. We use our gifts to lead you in worship. We use our gifts to teach kids. We use our gifts in, in ushering and in, 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 in meeting people at the door. Like all of these are part of how we serve the body of Christ. It's not an option. It's to be a regular part of our weekly routine. Romans 12.1, and we won't read it, but you're, you're aware of it. It talks about how we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. First Peter talks about our conduct out in the world being a, of such 
a, a, a caliber that people will look at us and they might get mad at us and they might get ticked at us, but they will glorify God because of the way that we're living. Corinthians helps us understand the vastness of worship where it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So loved ones, my prayer for us and for myself is that we would be a worshiping church. That we would worship as we gather together and we would worship as we go out into the world. I pray that we would be a people who regularly come together to meet with God and worship Him. Who know that God is always in our midst and in response bow before Him in reverence and humility. Who often gather around the Lord's table to celebrate His life and death through which we receive the forgiveness of sins. Where we often witness the miracle of new life through baptisms. Where people use their gifts to glorify God and benefit one another. Where we are enriched through the musical abilities and gifts that God has given as we need. Where we are awed by the reality of His power and presence. Where we can only conclude at the end of a gathering, God could only have done that. I long for times when we are unable to move or speak because of the weight and the glory of the presence of God in our midst. Where Christ is magnified, where the Spirit of God is at work, where the Word of God is unleashed with authority and clarity. And I pray that we might be a people whose lives are an incense before God, where during the week we live so as to please the Lord and point others to God. I pray that we would be a worshiping church. Thirdly, I pray that we would be a church that prays. And through prayer, we have a relationship with God. Through prayer, we draw on all the resources of heaven for our lives. Charles Spurgeon was concerned about the lagging prayer in his church, and he wrote to his congregation, Brethren, we shall never see much for our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Prayer matters. And I think we need to continue to cast ourselves before God in prayer. And I think it begins with men. Paul, writing to Timothy, that book that we referred to at the beginning, he says to them, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. I was thinking about that. Why does he add that without anger or quarreling? You know, I think sometimes as men... We can find a lot to get mad about. And we can be mad with one another. And we can quarrel amongst one another. And what a prayer killer that is. And Paul says, you know, get rid of that stuff. And come together and pray. And that's what encourages me about Thursday morning here at the church. And we have a group of upwards of 20 or more men that are meeting and it's growing. We have ladies that meet on Wednesday. We had an all-church prayer meeting a month and a half ago. We've got groups that pray and that I don't even know about. We pray in our growth groups. We pray in the ladies' study. We pray before Sunday night at the church. And I just pray that God will do something in us that will start showing us the benefit and the value of prayer. I was reading the book of Acts, and you can do this. Take out a concordance. I've gone through the book a couple of times, and just noted, uh, there, there are at least 30 direct references to prayer in the book of Acts. We find them as they are waiting for the promise of God, praying for 10 days. 
we find that people were praying to receive the Holy Spirit. That they prayed as they were suffering for their faith. They prayed by singing in midnight when they were thrown in jail. They prayed for the sick and they were healed. They prayed for the dead and they were raised. They prayed that people might come to saving knowledge of Christ and they were saved. They were thrown into prison and they earnestly prayed that they might be released. They went to the temple to pray. They went to designated places to pray. Women and children prayed. Those seeking God prayed. Those serving God prayed. We find prayer that was earnest. We find that it was continual. We find that the church gathered regularly to pray. Beloved, we need to be a praying church. And so I pray that we would be a church where prayer is a necessity. For a gathering of God's people who believe in the power of prayer and wrestle with God in prayer. Who realize that prayer does not force the hand of God, but rather opens the hand of God. Who understand that through our praying, God accomplishes His will on earth. That where our corporate praying is marked with fervency and constancy. And our private praying is marked by constancy and persistence. For groups to be praying during and after the, or before the services. Where we understand that our effectiveness is not marked by the measure of our efforts. Or appeal of our programs. Or the attraction of our services. Rather our effectiveness will be measured by our commitment to prayer. I pray for a church that will not move or act without prayer. I pray that we would be a serving church. Serving one another and serving the world. I have often said that I think this is one of our corporate gifts. If if a church can have a corporate gift, I think this is one of PFBC's gifts. You all know how to serve. And I think it's great that God has given us this opportunity to serve our community and to serve one another. And it's my prayer that we would grow and increase in our ability to serve one another and serve the community. And it comes with a certain set of attitudes, doesn't it? Some of you might be familiar with um, Philippians chapter 2, where we are reminded to have the same attitude as Christ had. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Position didn't matter to him. Power didn't matter to him. Serving God mattered. And so it says he emptied himself and he took the form of of a servant being born in the likeness of man. What humility to set aside his needs to serve one another. I was thinking of this in the example of Christ. Some of you would remember that in John chapter 13. How um, this was the last supper and they had all come through the city and they had gathered together and uh, the way that they would lie around is they would sort of, they, they didn't have a table with chairs, they would sort of lie on their elbow and put their feet out. And as they were lying around this table, I'm sure there was a, the aroma of stinky feet. If you've ever wear, worn leather sandals in the hot day, you know that you need to keep them outside when you come home. And so they would have had stinky feet and they would have had dirty feet. And as they were around the table eating dinner, they all endured this smell and this dirt. Because none of them had the ability to humble themselves and do what a servant would do. And so at the end of the meal, we read that Jesus got up, put a towel around his waist, and went around and washed everybody's feet. He just saw that there was a need that needed to be cared for. He didn't care if he got the credit for it. He didn't care that he was God in the flesh. He didn't care that he was the leader of this bunch. He simply said, there's a job that needs to be done. Nobody's willing to do it. I'm going to do it. And as he's talking to his disciples at the end of it, he says, I've given you an example. 
that you should also do just as I have done for you. Philippians also describes the attitude. It says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count one another as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That's hard to do. We all have busy lives. We all have things that we want to accomplish. But that's what it means to serve one another. So I pray that we might be a serving church. I pray that we would be a church that has embraced the example of Christ. That has considered position something not to be grasped. Who models humility and care as he did when he washed the disciples' feet. Where our members embrace the call to servanthood by turning away from self-interest and giving themselves in service to one another. Where we understand that we serve not only one another, but the world in which we live. Being salt and light, not just to those like us, but embraces our whole community, families, single people, the old, the young, rich, the poor. I pray that we would be a church that's sensitive to the needs around us. Sensitive to those changing needs. Flexible enough to respond in a timely fashion. Where we consider the needs and interests of others as more important than our own. I pray that we might be a serving church. I pray that we might be a caring church. That we would love the least and the lost amongst us. We have lots of words that help us understand care. We talk about mercy, loving kindness, compassion. We only need to turn to God and we see how God is caring towards us. We read about it even this morning. Cast your cares upon God because he cares for you. That's my ongoing desire for us as a church. That we would bear one another's burdens. That we would love one another as we have been loved by Christ that we would bless those who persecute us, that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be in agreement with one another, not be proud and stand to associate with the humble, that we wouldn't be wise in our own estimation, that we wouldn't repay evil for evil, that we would try to do what is honorable in everybody's eyes, that if possible, as long as it depends on us, that we would be at peace with everyone, that we wouldn't avenge ourselves, but that we would leave room for the wrath of God. That if our enemy is hungry, we would feed him. If he is thirsty, we would give them something to drink. That we would love our enemies and do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. That we would realize that James has given us an idea, an example of a caring church when he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I pray that we might be a caring church where our congregation is drawn uh, from the diversity in our community and we model the unity and diversity of the family of God whose fellowship is warm and welcoming. We're never marred by anger and selfishness, jealousy, pride, whose members love each other from a pure heart, being patient with one another, willing to forgive, who bear one another's burden, who offers friendship to the lonely, support to the weak, acceptance to those who are despised and rejected by society, whose love spills over to the world around us, attractive, irresistible, the love of God himself. I pray that we might be a caring church. And then the last one this morning. 
I pray that we might be an expectant church. Uh, This might catch a few of you by surprise, but it comes from my background, but I think it is thoroughly informed by Scripture. An expectant church is a church that lives with its eyes on the clouds waiting for Jesus Christ to return. I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition, surrounded by regular Sunday evening sermons that were all about the coming of the great beast, the mark of the beast, the tribulation, the suffering that Christians would go through, the fact that the return of Christ was imminent and the rapture could take place at any moment and those that knew Jesus would be lifted up to be with him forever and the rest would be all around. And um, it was just constant. And it had an ongoing impact on us as, as a church because it, it, it was always in our mind week after week after week, Christ could come back, Christ can come back. The Antichrist might show up. The tribulation might come. And so it affected the way that you thought and lived. I remember as a little boy, not maybe not so little, 10, 11 years old, because my mom and dad would leave me and my brother alone at this point. But we would go to church. And after these um, Sunday nights where, where, where you were emotionally distraught at the end of the evening, my mom and dad would take us home and they'd say, you know, you guys go to bed. We're going out for coffee with people. We'll be home at 11. And so I'd be lying in bed, my eyes just wide open, thinking, shoot, am I a Christian? Am I going to be caught up in the rapture? And about five minutes after 11, I couldn't hear the diesel car pull into the driveway. About 10 minutes after 11, I was starting to sweat. About quarter after 11, I would run downstairs to the church directory, look up the first deacon and phone him, and when they answered, I'd hang up, because I'd know the rapture hadn't happened. But it was so much a part of my psyche that we had been taught that Jesus was coming again and it should shape the way that we live. Loved ones, times have not changed. Titus tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 is a chapter all about the fact that, that, that some are mocking and saying, he's never coming back. Look, you, you, you've been talking about this stuff forever and ever. He's not coming back. Just give it up. Peter says, no, no, no. Don't be sucked in by those naysayers. God's promises are sure. And he says he is coming back. He's being patient because he wants none to miss out on salvation. But you can be sure that the heavens and the earth are going to be dissolved. And in light of the fact that they're going to be destroyed, it is clear what sort of people you should be, he writes, in conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God. Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish before him. You see, the coming of Christ should have a purifying effect on us. It says in in John, dear friends, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. You just need to read Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and see all of the references to watch. Be alert. He's coming like a thief. The end is near. Look at the signs. Loved ones, we need to be alert. We need to be watching. 
we need to remember that this world is passing away and everything in it will be burnt up and destroyed. We need to understand that Jesus Christ is coming again. And that thought should shape our actions and our attitudes and our speaking every moment of the day. When is the last time you reflected on the return of Christ? When is the last time, as you thought about it, it caused you to make one decision over another decision? I love what Paul writes. He says, There is reserved for me in the future a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Are you one that is just dying for Christ to return? I pray that we would be an expectant church. And I wish, you know, there used to be songs that we would sing all the time. Um, Andre Kraut, soon and very soon. What a day that will be. Um, You know, we don't sing those anymore. Thank you. Why not? Because I think our singing reflects our reality. And I've often said, I, I haven't talked to Mike yet. I wish people were writing songs about the return of Christ. So that we would sing it. We would think about it. Because what you sing gets embedded in your minds. I'm going on. I'm sorry. But I think it matters. And so I pray that we would be an expectant church. Where all who call this their church will never be able to settle down in material affluence or comfort. Because we know that we are only strangers, aliens, and pilgrims here where we live with watchfulness and readiness for the blessed hope of the church, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, where in the light of the certain return of Christ, we live holy, godly lives so that we might be lights in a dark and despairing world, where we live with our eyes to the clouds in joyful expectation of the sure and certain return of Christ, where we never settle for what this world has to offer, where we increasingly remember that our citizenship is in heaven. I pray that we would be an expectant church. Loved ones, that is what makes us eternally, internally strong. I pray that we would be a biblical church. I pray that we would be a worshiping church. I pray that we would be a praying church. I pray that we would be a serving church. I pray that we would be a caring church. And I pray that we would be an expectant church. May all of us share this prayer. And under God, May our prayers be answered yet in our lifetime. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.